podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another Wagon Wheel on Spotify Green Room. Remember, these all come up on the Red Inca playlists on our podcast, which you can go listen to. We ca- they come out every week, I think, on Saturday. I should know this, shouldn't I? And they also, when we have time, we put them up on the YouTube channel as well. And you can also subscribe to us on Spotify Green Room. I think your phone like says Jared Kimber's now talking or something like that. And uh, you can come and listen to them here. Big shout out to our sponsors. Obviously, Manscaped with their Lawnmower 4.0, which is... Treat your balls like I think they deserve to be treated, if we're being honest. Better than the Lord's groundsman. Although, I was never that big a fan of Mick Hunt anyway, but that's for another day. But Manscaped, if you use the code REDINCA, all one word, you get 20% off and free worldwide shipping, and then you can shave your balls. I mean, what more do you want in your life, really, than that? And also to Bodyline T-shirts. I've got my Richie Benno T-shirt on today. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, my son says that. My son has no idea who Richie Benno is, but I say morning, everyone, so often uh, that he now says it back to me. And then it, sometimes he says, who's the man who says morning, everyone? He also says he wants to make a werewolf movie with a character named Kevin Durant in the lead. So a lot going on with my son as a general rule. Again, as always, huge shout out to everyone on Buy Me A Coffee, who's been helping support us and looking after our work, and also Patreon. And if you are on Patreon and you're on a certain tier, then you get the chance to ask your questions first on this very podcast. So you see it in the show notes, or you can just Google Jared Kimber Patreon if you want to support us and go there. This second episode is basically fully paid by Patreon. That allows us to do a second episode. The more Patreon support we get, we will be able to bring in a third episode eventually weekly as well. But let's start with Ray. And she says, Temper Bavuma as a captain, your opinion. Do you know what, Ray? I only saw little bits of that series. Um, I have obviously seen him captain before. I think he's quite a straight down the line person. I think, you know, in, in any sort of professional capacity, you'd call him a safe pair of hands. I think the players uh, like playing for him. I think they understand uh, him. I think he's quite clear. I don't think he's, you know, if, if you know, he's not a funky captain. He's not doing, um, you know, crazy things. But I think a lot of that is overblown anyway. Um, but I, th- I think he's, I mean, I think most captains are fine. I don't think there are that many professional captains who are not pluses for their teams. It's just probably on the scale of how much of a plus are you? Are you, you know, do you have the ability of MS Tony to, you know, sort of get the most out of each individual player and make the unit a little bit better? Or um, are you just uh, going through the numbers? I, I don't think it makes that much of a difference anyway, but I think Timber's fine. Um Duncan says, uh, so what is county cricket actually for then? Well, county cricket technically is for county cricket fans. Um, that is, that's why it was developed. That's how it has grown over the years. Um, it's not uh, the same situation as some of the other first-class sorts of setups. Um, it hasn't really developed to become more of a, a safety support for English cricket or a, a, not safety support, but a you know, a production mill for English cricket. That was a secondary thing. Realistically, if you look, especially think of how strong county cricket was up until World War II, you would say that uh, county cricket was way stronger than test cricket outside of Australia playing England, obviously. Uh, But the other teams weren't really of, you know, a high county standard at that point. Um, So, so yeah, I think, um, I think it's very fair to say um, that county cricket was set up fundamentally to always look after the county members of each team and that's what it does um it doesn't mean it hasn't produced great cricketers but it's probably not set up to consistently make great cricketers for international cricket it's not the only first class system like that either to be fair ian says is brendan taylor the tip of the iceberg as your piece pointed out there are a myriad of things that you can bet on in cricket these days and some of the more obscure markets wouldn't have a huge effect on the result how widespread do you think it is i mean that's the question that we're probably asked as people who work in cricket, whether you're a player or a broadcaster or, a, you know, a writer, um, more than anything else is, you know, how many of these games are fixed. The truth is that we don't know. It's funny that you say that there's a myriad of things you can bet on in cricket these days. That's not a modern thing, Ian. That's how the game was set up. Uh, the whole idea of the game from the beginning was to ensure that, um, I mean, the laws are what they are. So we have as many, um, bets available to us at all time the real difference is first pay tv 
and that starts in the 90s and that's when uh, match fixing becomes a bigger deal and then after that now streaming as well you know you can bet on you can bet on a very small women's tournament um you know you can bet on a domestic women's tournament or associate women's tournaments quite easily now um and those players aren't getting paid a lot of money and we haven't seen it really take off in women's cricket yet but my guess is that it's fixing in women's cricket associate cricket's been hit really hard because again those players aren't getting paid a lot of money and as you said there's so many game you know i think i've i've written about this before but you know when you work with a franchise when teams are winning, everyone wants to win because there's usually um, they get. If you win the tournament, you get a small slice of the um, winners check, and so everyone is working toward that. Would be great. The minute you start to lose, everyone would actually prefer not to even make the finals um, because they want to get away early. Now you know that's a normal thing. We all feel in work, but it does mean that there are a lot of people who are playing a lot of games that don't matter a lot particularly to them, um, and that is a problem. But the million dollar question. How, you know, I mean, Shield Berry once said every game on TV is fixed. Um, I find that hard to believe, but it's obviously a lot bigger than what we know. I think that's very fair. Kumar says, uh, with Brendan Taylor and his street revelations, especially about the delayed payment by the boards, do you think there'll be a push by FICA to create unions um, to help the players or officials? Well, FICA is a union. Um, the BCCI, the Richards board, just paid Ranji players compensation for cancelled tournaments after nearly two years, and they've yet to pay match officials and umpires. Yeah, I... This is huge. I, I don't think – I know you've mentioned Zimbabwe and Sri Lanka is another one. Obviously, the BCCI has had problems with this before. I don't think the major problem, as far as I'm aware, is the, the boards themselves. It really is more the T20 franchises where uh, and the leagues where this is a huge problem. Um, where quite often you're just never paid. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, FICA, I can't remember what countries. I think – I'm trying to think. Is Zimbabwe might even be part of FICA? I have to think about that. But um, realistically, until all the cr- professional cricketers in the world are part of FICA, FICA is only going to be so powerful um, and at the moment. And especially if you don't have the Indian players, that's such a big marketplace. Um, so having the Australian and English players is quite good. Obviously, um, South Africa and New Zealand, there's a lot of you know good player representation. But realistically, if the players are going to be treated correctly, they all have to join up uh, with the union. And it's you know there are different cultures within cricket. Not everyone is a comes from a union background um culture of course um and they don't you know they don't always see the benefits in in unions and so if that's the case i think it's harder to, to suggest to some of those players but yes the Ranji players not getting paid if they had a better stronger union obviously that would help not sure it would solve all the problems but it could help neil says benny howell is one of my favorite cricketers apart down to your podcast yeah um and has performed um in most of the t20 or t10 leagues around the world um, he hasn't played in that many, but yeah. Uh, do you think he has the opportunity to play in the IPL and or England have passed? Um, how well do you think he would have performed in for both? Uh, so uh, in the IPL, I know he's been really close a couple of times. My guess is that he probably still gets a random call-up. I don't think he'll ever play a full season um, unless he you know comes in the first two games and takes a bunch of wickets. Um, but I do think he probably gets a random call-up to the IPL. I don't think England cricket really understand what he is, even to this point. Um, there are certainly people within English cricket who get it. It's really hard to explain to people. I, I, the amount of times I've just had arguments with people in English cricket about what they have. Um, I think someone might have – I'm trying to remember if someone said this on a podcast or someone was chatting to me recently. They said, if forward alarm is the worst sort of test player that was overlooked – you know, is Benny Howell the most, you know, overlooked T20 player? It's probably true. I don't think we've ever had a player this good at T20 cricket who just couldn't get the major jobs, um, couldn't even get a game uh, for his team. I don't think he's even played Lions cricket. It's phenomenal how, considering how smart England have been with white ball cricket, how stupid they have been with Benny Howell, just not to throw him in. The interesting thing for him will be Adil Rashid. I don't think England is going to replace Adil Rashid with someone they're going to feel as comfortable with. And Benny Howe is basically a leg spinner, right? Well, a spinner. Maybe not a leg spinner. He also does off spin and everything else. Um, so I would be really interested to see it when Adil Rashid leaves um, or or struggles if Benny Howe comes on, on then. But you're probably right. I don't think he'll ever play a lot of IPL cricket. Um, and I don't think he'll play for England as it currently stands. 
he is a very fit person. Uh, you know, he's a, you know, he's a super fit athlete, can field, has started improving his batting a little bit, so things might change. But um, as it currently stands, yeah, I really don't see him getting the opportunities that quite clearly. I mean, there are a lot of very, very ordinary English cricketers who have got far better idea, uh, far better um, uh, franchise careers than he has, um, and they don't have any of the numbers to back it up that he does. So it's ridiculous, really. Uh, Christopher says, what cricket books would you recommend? And if someone paid you enough, what book would you like to write? I'd love to write about the four leg spinners uh, from South Africa. Uh, that's probably one of my, my biggest ones. I'd like to write a really good book about match fixing, but I don't think that anyone's going to publish it. Um, uh, but, but I would certainly like to do that. Um, those are probably the two off the top of my head. Um, a writer, maybe write something a little bit more about the evolution of cricket and how things have changed and how people need to understand it. And obviously, eventually, that you know, I'd like to write a great, you know, Moneyball or MVP machine type book um, about cricket. Uh, books I would recommend. Um, I don't think there's anything here that that you wouldn't know about before. There's a really good one that people have, a lot of people haven't read, which is called the. Um, I want to say it's called the Strange History of English Leg Spin. I hope I've got that right. Um, obviously, uh, Christian Ryan, um, his book, Golden Boy, is incredible. Usman Samiadin's book, book, his book about Pakistan cricket is absolutely brilliant. Um, the Unquiet Ones, um, uh, uh, Tim Wigmore and uh, Freddie Wilde's book about T20 cricket. Uh, the Nathan Lehman, Ben Jones one as well um, is really good. Um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the older ones that I've read that I really like. Um, uh there's some really old good ones about history and I cannot f- think of any of the names of them. But yeah, no, there's certainly some good ones out there and I've got absolutely nothing for you. Sorry, Christopher. <laughs> uh, James says, uh, could you give me an example of result you found in statistical analysis that was particularly counterintuitive? And when that happens, how do you sanity check it, uh, ensure that the result is really what it looks like, not the product of incorrect method? Ooh, that's a good one, James. I suppose the first one was when I worked out that Yorkers only were successful 33% of the time. I just figured that if that if it was only 33% of the time, batters would have worked out a way to capitalize them on capitalize on the, the missed ones more often. Batters should have been using the crease more. Um, the bottom of bat should have been stronger. All those sorts of things, which they have all now done. But I think at the time I thought that was wrong until I started working out. Well, wait a minute. If you graph it out the full tosses and the, the half volleys, it would make sense that, and then the more we knew about how accurate bowlers were, that kind of made sense. So, you know, I suppose you always, if when you get a result like that, you have to do, you have to do more. I'm trying to think of the right word. You have to look at other methods that could back it up or not back it up to make sure that there isn't a mistake in the data. Uh, the other one that really shocked me was that wicketkeepers missed a third of all stumpings. But since then, I kept my own data for a little while to have a look. And yeah, it was almost up closer to 75. 75% <laughs> of uh, of stumpings were taken and 25%. Sorry, that's wrong. Sorry, was, my numbers were about 60% um, were taken and about 40% were, were missed. Um, so, you know, I just, I backed it up that way. Most of the time, though, when you do find something that's so counterintuitive, it actually does work out to either be false or either have a very good explanation that you just haven't thought of. Um, you know, a lot of being, doing analysis is just doing the background work, I think, is probably the best way of putting it. AB says, why England support death bowling in T20s? Poor strategy, poor execution. Death bowls don't have enough variations. Worst economy rate of full member nations. Yeah, 10.3 since the start of 2021. One thing I would say, AB, is that if Joffre Archer had played in all those games, they wouldn't be the worst death bowling team, would be my guess. The other thing I would say is that they probably always haven't had their strongest team. The international T20 numbers are really dodgy. Uh, so can the World Cup, uh, the ODI numbers uh, in the two years after a World Cup can also be quite dodgy at times just because teams don't play their best players and they rotate and they try new new things and, and, and everything. I think part of the problem, maybe, though, is that if Chris Jordan's going through a bad run and he's bowling roughly 50% of them, uh, that that is that's a huge problem for England. I think that's why Tamar Mills came back in as well. Um, you know, they're trying to do that. They're trying to sort that problem out. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad tactics. The, the one thing I would say is having watched them play against West Indies recently, I do wonder if 
I almost think with death bowlers, you need to be, you either need to completely back your skills and what you do well, and it will eventually come around because you've already been successful at it consistently, or you need to really react to the ground, the wind, the pitch, and the batter in front of you. And I feel that sometimes England is maybe a little bit locked into a style that they think everyone needs to bowl. This is from the outside. I haven't talked to Nathan Lehman or any England bowlers or coaches about this, but I feel like they get a little bit locked in and they don't have the ability to adapt and they maybe don't have the frontline skills to be able to just back themselves at being good at what they're doing. But, James, if you like death bowling, uh, sorry, is AB, was that? AB, if you like death bowling, I've just done a whole podcast with Jane Dernbach about death bowling, which I think you you really like, um, and that will come up s- soon enough. But I do think, you know, on a basic level, that if Joffre Archer is playing, it's not going to be as bad for them, is it? Um, and Steve says, how do central contracts work uh, for Scott Boland? He plays those three tests now. For the rest of the season, does he get? Uh, does he no longer get a salary from Victoria? You can uh, – central contracts are slightly different for different countries. If you play enough international cricket, you can go into a central contract where you, you're no longer getting paid by your state and you're getting paid internationally. I don't know if three tests is the cutoff, though, Steve. Um so I'm not sure about that. But, but yeah, there is a cutoff that you go where you go from getting paid by one or getting paid by the other so that you basically have a new boss. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a reason that they do that is because they want to control their players. They don't want their players to be controlled by Victoria or Surrey or, you know, um, uh, um, Mumbai or whoever, whoever it is. So um, that does happen. And I don't believe you get both contracts at that point. Um, but... It, I think it's different in every different place. So you don't always get centrally contracted at that uh, after three. So that's three matches, but three tests. So I'm, I'm not sure what the current Australian one is. But yeah, as a general rule, it's more. It's less about the money, um, and it's more about the control and who's in charge and you know who's looking after your rehab and all that sort of stuff. And and it works differently in different countries as well. But thanks to everyone on Patreon. Remember, if you want to get your questions in first on this here thing and not just, uh, um, uh, you know, hope that I get to your question, um, uh, join us on Patreon and join. I think it's the second highest tier and on up and you can ask your questions. Let's get to the chat, though. Johan. Jared. How you doing? What's your question? So I've been following women's cricket recently. And one thing that I noticed is... For them, usually the ball swings irrespective of the conditions. And I think it has something to do with the pace that they bowled at, which is like usually less than 120 kilometers per hour. So what do you think is the reason? And, you, and I've heard Mike Hassan talk about this thing called optimal swinging pace. Uh, do mm. you think that's true? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is the case. The faster you bowl, A, the faster you bowl, the harder it is to keep a perfect seam and a wrist position because you're stretching your body in other ways to get the extra pace. And then also the faster you bowl, it does feel like there's less swing. So, the, uh, you know, what you really want is, I mean, there was that perfect moment when I, I think Ben Hilfenhouse and I suppose Jimmy Anderson's done this as well, when they were both around 90 miles an hour when they were younger, they still had the ability to swing the ball. But certainly when they slow down, it swings a lot more. So that's that's the main reason of women's cricket, I would suggest. And also in women's cricket, they tend to um, slow down on purpose because the ball once the ball starts swinging it that much, it causes extra problems. So they're not searching for that little bit of extra pace. Whereas in men's cricket, at the moment anyway, there's a combination of trying to bowl as fast as you can and swing the ball as much as you can. Um, uh, so I think that, yeah, definitely the pace is very, very important there. But it's also um, it probably also has to do with the actions. Women's actions tend to be a little bit more classical in the same way if you watch their batting, their techniques are a little bit more classical. And that's been a generational thing over the last, well, actually I've talked to older women's cricketers. They reckon this goes back a long way, but women's cricketers were always told to be really, really technically correct in a way that men aren't. So men rely on pace and spin and bounce and hitting and all these sorts of things. And women were always taught, get that front elbow up as high as possible. And it's really only been the last five or 10 years when that hasn't been the case. So my guess is if that, and I've talked more about batting, but my guess is if that's a thing about batting, that the same thing has happened with bowling. And I know for a fact 
that women were actually told to bowl slower for a long period and, and, and work on their techniques and work on swinging the ball. And it's only really, again, been the last maybe five or 10 years that they re we've really started to unleash fast women and say, just bowl as fast as you can. Uh, really the Elise Perry sort of era um, maybe started that. And then around the world where, you know, women are now just being told, just go in and wang it. More wanging and less seam and less seam and swing. Um, but yeah, the slower, the slower you bowl, the more you should be, you have a perfect wrist. And also there does seem to be an optimum speed for um, swinging the ball. Yeah. Why do you think that there aren't more of those kind of bowlers in men's cricket, like who focus only on swing, even though they compromise on pace? Well, I mean, there are. They play first-class cricket. At test cricket, you need that extra pace because the ball stops swinging and the pitches are flatter. In first-class cricket, there's plenty of bowlers around the world who swing the ball a long distance. Maybe not quite as much as the women, but they are bowling a little bit quicker. But also, the, the thing in men's cricket, we've gone away from swing bowling in general basically since the West Indies came along. Uh, West Indies went, uh, why don't we just bowl it really fast or bowl it from a really high height and bang it into the pitch over and over again? Um, and that will always keep our bowlers in the game. Swing bowlers don't, don't always stay in the game. They're very dependent on conditions. Um, where A tall guy doesn't get any shorter and a fast guy doesn't get that much slower, right? Whereas a swing bowler, once the ball stops swinging, can be quite useless or at least not as effective. Um and so men's cricket changed quite dramatically. We haven't really had a revolution of women's cricket of tall bowlers coming in yet for a couple of reasons. Women aren't as tall. And also a lot of women grow up facing um, uh, men um, who are taller. And, and, you know, you would need a really tall woman to make a big difference. So uh, Annabelle Sutherland is a perfect example of that. She's really slow, but she's so tall for a woman. Um, I think is she six foot four, six foot five, six foot six. Um, that she makes a difference, but we don't have that many six foot four, six foot five, six foot six women bowling in um, uh, professionally at the moment. So swing is still a really, really important part of women's cricket. Okay, thank you. No worries. Who have we got next? Ikant. Ikant. How you doing? Yeah, uh, good. Uh, first of all, great set of questions so far. So <laughs> this is <laughs> a cool episode so far. So the theme of my question is your soft skills and humor. So, in particular, uh, your ability to be articulate and, you know, relevant, you're relevant even when you go on tangents at times, uh, but then again, you can meander also, like, as effortlessly, again, at times, uh, you, your call. <laughs> at the moment, it feels very backhanded, but I will let you continue. I mean, I've watched and heard a lot of your stuff, you know, particularly on interviews, and the question is, you know, your answers are so good that uh, you start thinking about the question over, you know, the quality of the question, so to speak. Anyway, uh, the point, uh, the question is about your preparation and your spontaneity. And, uh, you know, in general, your uh, ability to speak freely. Uh, how did that come about and what are the things that uh, have evolved over time? Uh, okay. Yeah, I suppose I come from a history of very good oral storytellers in my family. My nan was an incredible storyteller. Um, she had, if she started telling a story everyone would listen and she had a sort of gravitas to it. So I probably learned a lot from her very early on. All of her stories, I mean, she was, she was, you know, 70, 80 year old woman. Um, and most of her stories involved swear words um, and jokes and just cruelty. She was very cruel, you know, humor. And, you know, she told great stories. Then, um, uh, then there was another person in our family, it was sort of a family friend, a guy called Bonga Bonga. Um, who's my father's best friend's father, it was. So he was almost like a grandfather to me. And again, he had this ability to tell these stories that everyone listened to. And, you know, I, I suppose it starts with those two people. My mum's an actress, uh, an amateur actress, never did anything, uh, did very, very little professionally. I think she did a, a, little, a, a couple of uh, professional shows, but very little professionally. But um, I grew up around the theatre. Um, so again, you know, you got to learn how to speak listening to people in those sorts of environments. The other thing, weirdly, with cricket, which I've talked about before, and it's very, it's very rare, my cricket club had this thing where at the end of the day's play, all the teams would come back to the, the, the club rooms and the captain from each team would tell the story of the game. And it was incredible. And everyone had a different style of doing it. And some people were funny and some people were really serious and some people were, like, really stat-driven um, I remember this one guy was just, oh, he's big. He used like the fall of wicket as like uh, a plot point. Um, it was so dramatic the way that he used it. He never missed the fall of wicket. 
And, you know, he'd be like, oh, Baza and Bluey, they went really, really well up top. And then it, you know, and then a hundred for one, you know, well, it would be one for a hundred, wouldn't it? A um, hundred for one, we lost the wicket. And then we were two for 112, three for 118. But then Smithy came in and it was like, I remember being really, I, and I just thought every cricket club in the world was like this. And I realized my club was just really rare. And uh, there's a few clubs that did it, but it's really not a big deal. So again, I had the combination of sport and and um, uh, sport and storytelling sort of coming together. And my dad listened to so much um, sports radio. So even before we had a proper sports radio station in Australia, we had like a horse racing channel. And in the morning, they would do general sports. And there was this great old Victorian wicketkeeper called Slug Jordan, who's maybe one of the cruelest people to ever play sport. Um, and just absolutely brutal with his stories. Um, and Simon O'Donnell was on that as well, who's actually quite a good storyteller as well, especially on radio. But I had all these different weird Victorian sports celebrities come through. And I think the combination of all those sort of things came across. Also, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian when I was young. So uh, I always had like, the ability to have the quick wit, which I probably got from my mum and, and my nan, um, you know, the ability to sum up something quite quite well um, and then put it together. So I think I was just lucky that I came from all those different sorts of um, backgrounds. Oh, another one was um, Henry Rollins, um, the heavy metal singer. I used to listen to, he used to have all these spoken word tapes and I used to listen to them over and over again and CDs when I got old enough to have CDs. Um, and so I was always drawn to incredible storytellers. I, I remember one year I bought my dad um, a Wes Hall cassette you know, of West Hall's greatest stories, another brilliant storyteller. Um, and so I suppose for whatever reason, I gravitated to them. I either gravitated to them because I liked them or I gravitated towards them because I was naturally good at it. But I remember from a very early age, um, I, I remember my teachers would get me to do the reading of the books. And I don't know if that's because I'd done a lot of, I'd done some acting when I was a kid through my mum's theatre company. Um, or if it was something to do with that. Um, and sometimes I would act out the books if other people would read them out as well. So there was a lot of all that sort of stuff um, going on uh, in my life. And, you know, I acted in adult plays when I was quite young as well. I, I didn't do that many plays. I probably only did, I don't know, maybe six or seven. Um, but, they, you know, they all had a big impact on 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 who I was. So it's probably this weird combination of all those sorts of things. But I suppose, you know, it comes from, um, my mum was always really well known of, uh, uh, here's a cricket story that you'll like. I think it might be in my book, The Lily of Camberfield, which is a story about my childhood. But my dad would take a lot of wickets, like a lot of wickets every year. He would bowl ridiculous spells. He'd bowl like 35 over spells over and over again. And my dad was also quite a large man. He, he was quite overweight at times. He was quite a brilliant athlete when he was young. And then he got a little bit too much into drinking and got quite big. And my mum would be the scorer and they wouldn't know that my mum uh, and my dad were related, obviously. And uh, the batters would come in one after the other and just be like, um, uh, I can't believe I got out to that fat prick and all this sort of stuff. And my mum was like legendary of, of being known as the person be like, uh, actually, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I can't believe I got out to that fat prick. He's so shit. And my mum would sit there scoring and go, well, how shit must you be then? You know, and she would, and she was known within cricket. But you know, by the end, especially as my dad took so many wickets, people started to talk about it. Um, so that I have naturally as well. Whatever my mum has, that ability to instantly sort of um, sum up something really quickly, and and you know, stick a dagger into someone or or make the funny comment. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably just a, a combination of a lot of the things that I was interested in when I was on, when I was young. Um, and it's, you know, sort of come out. So there you go. There's the longest answer um, to your story. I think I did meander in that answer. Can I ask a follow-up? Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. About the humor part, you talked mm -hmm. about uh, there being aggressive thing, uh, a sense of aggressive style of humor. So sometimes that doesn't translate well. And uh, maybe when you uh, started your career, you, you once talked about playing cricket in England and how different it was in England as opposed to Australia. So that might have been an, uh, you know similar with uh, humor as well in the sensibil sensibilities there, and you know there's a sense of eccentric being eccentric and being maverick also with the way you speak sometimes. So how did you kind of grow into that, and uh, what were the issues you faced? So when I started on cricket with balls, you got to remember I wasn't really expecting it to go anywhere. <laughs> 
Yeah, even Two Pricks is another one. Like, you know, that was Sam's idea really much more than it was mine. I was going to go out and film some stuff and do some stuff. But it was Sam's idea to turn that into a show. And then between us, we kind of made it into the show that we wanted to make it. So you don't really expect... I suppose I start everything by thinking, what would I want to see? What would I like to read? What would I like to listen to, right? And then making something on the basis of that. And if that's the case, then I like stand-up comedy and, uh, you know, I suppose, you know, I grew up in that sort of 90s style of stand-up comedy, uh, which was quite aggressive um, and loud um, at times. So I probably come from that sort of a background when I speak. Um, I come from a family where, you know, the when my grandparents died, those nights were some of the best nights of my life because we just sat around um, and told funny stories, right? So I don't come from a place where if something's bad, we mourn it. I come from a place where if something's sad, we make lots of jokes at the expense of the dead person as much as at the expense of ourselves or anyone else. Like that's how we dealt with grief. So I probably come at this a lot different than a normal person. That was just the background that I had. Um, and so, you know, cricket's not that serious, right? It's like someone's played a bad shot. Let's have a joke. Um, I've said something stupid. Let's make fun of me. Let's make fun of Sam. Um, let's make fun of George, you know? Uh, so I, I probably came from it from that point of view, um, which is different than everyone else. And then, you know, you do, when you start to have success, you sort of go in on that. And I suppose what you try, what I suppose early on you accidentally punch down a lot because you don't really know what you're doing. And over time you kind of realize that punching up is a funnier um, and more important. Um, and so you sort of go in that sort of direction. But also I think for me, once I got to a certain level of notoriety in my work, when I, when I, if I do say something that upsets people, more often than not, the people who understand my work will explain it to the other people. Right. I knew very early on, uh, I remember Wright Thompson wrote this in uh, 2011, maybe, that India was a post ironic society. Right. And you could probably at that stage say that Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh were all quite similar. The, the, you know, the people who had Western roots or had been educated in the West were a little bit different. But as you and I know, there are a lot of people in India that if you say something, they take it completely on face value every time. Um, and it, you know, and uh, and that's right across, and and you get that. That's not just a, a subcontinental thing. That lots of different societies are like that. Um, and so, I kind of had a choice then at that point, right? Do I change my style and make it more and explain every joke and signpost every joke, or do I just please myself? And I probably just decided to please myself. Now, I was just talking about this to my producer. The first time I was on BBC, so this isn't even an Asian thing, right? First time I was on BBC, it was Johnson Agnew had me on TMS. And I was like rolling and telling jokes and bang, bang, bang. And then after about the fifth joke, I realized that every single joke I'd said, Jonathan Agnew had to explain it to the audience because they weren't going to know enough about cricket to get the joke. And I realized that my audience was not TMS's audience very early on. So again, I have a decision to make, right? Do I want to be more like that? Do I want to be slightly more bland and, and have that kind of career? No, because I'd be bored out of my fucking mind, right? I don't want to do that. I don't want to really deal with that kind of... Pe I just want to do the things that I'm interested in and that, that excite me and make me laugh and make me cry and uh, entertain me. And if that's the case, then look, there's going to be some broken eggs along the way and I'm going to get things wrong and I'm going to upset you know, huge parts of the, uh, huge parts of the society, uh, you know, cricket culture and society and, and everything along the way. But I'm going to be me doing that. Right. And so I probably very early on just went, fuck it. This has worked so far. I'm going to keep doing it. And also I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't think I would ever be able to do those sorts of things that other people do. Right. Um, that those sorts of, um, you know, Alan Wilkins is not, it's very different when you meet him in real life than he is kind of on air. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but Alan Wilkins has a real professional host vibe to him. Pommy and Bang, another one. And they're both very good at, at being hosts. I'm just never going to be able to do that. I'm never going to be able to hit the marks the way that they hit the marks, but I can do stuff that they can't even get near. Right. And I have the ability to be able to do that sort of stuff. And I also have a freedom because I've built that up into my career. If you get Alan Wilkins privately, he's a very he's a great raconteur, right? Um, but he he would probably feel uncomfortable telling those sorts of stories 
over and over again publicly, whereas I clearly don't. <laughs> I enjoy them. I think it's fun. It's why I do the job is being able to, to do those sorts of things. So, um, and that's not picking on Alan. I think Alan's brilliant at what he does and, you know, having worked with him, you know, thorough professional, but I was never going to be able to do that. You know, I worked with Andrew McKenna and um, on TalkSport and Andrew McKenna is like a, he's a, he's a presenter's presenter, you know, real work. You work down the line, does everything right. I can't do what Andrew McKenna does, but I can do what I do. And I back the fact that if I keep doing what I do, no matter what it be, you know, you're talking about one specific thing, but right across the board, if I can do what I do, I think there will always be an audience there for that. And, um, and also there's, you know, it is who I am, you know, uh, this pod, this, you know, doing this podcast, it's a slightly different version of who I am, but it's basically me more or less. And I find it much easier to do that than I, than I would to, um, a pair it back and it allows me to do q a's like this a lot of people in the business wouldn't just sit in front of a computer for an hour and a half and let people ask them questions right and it's because they would feel uncomfortable and they f- would feel like they're not prepared they'd be worried that they would say the wrong thing and all those sorts of things and uh, i i don't really have those sorts of fears so here we are thanks for your question mate who we got next jimmy boy hi Aaron. what's your question yeah, so I wanted to ask you about what does the future of cricket YouTube looks like? Amateur content and monotonous content right now related to cricket on YouTube, except for yourself. PGC are doing a great job, the great cricketer, and we cricket are doing a decent job. But apart from that, we don't have a variety of content. Like um, you take the case of football, very good channels like Oh My Goal, Soccer Stories, and uh, TIFA Football. So, what do you think the future of cricket YouTube looks like? It's a really interesting question. From my views, it seems that YouTube is much bigger in Asia than it is in in the West. So the majority of, uh, it seems, you know, Bangladesh, uh, India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan seem to be more YouTube orientated. Even if I put a podcast up on on that and reading uh, on, on the podcast, they're much more, that audience is much more likely to go in that direction, right? So I would assume that in the short term that the future of uh, of cricket YouTube is Asia. I think we've already seen that with Shoaib Akhtar and Akash Topra. Uh, we've got Avinav Mukund on now. Um, I think we'll, I, there was a point where um, Arya Yutsu, who um, you know is the brains behind my channel and Akash's channel, there was a point where he was getting a call every week from a major person in in, in Asian cricket um, saying, can you run my channel? Can you run my channel? So uh, I think we'll get a lot more um, retired players and probably current players like um, Ashwin um, with their own channels. I think Pat Cummins and Usman Khawaja have their own channels now as well, don't they? I think from a creative standpoint, I think the next level is probably um, people seeing what I've done, uh, maybe people seeing what Tifo Football has done, what John Boyce has done, um, and working out a way for that to work. We'll probably see more video essays. I think Cameron Ponsonby, when he came through, made a video essay. I can't remember if that was for Crick Info or The Guardian or someone. Um, but I think you'll see more journalists and, and people trying to get into the industry doing that. Obviously, you've got people like Cricket with Ash and Flighted Leggy um, coming through um, uh, Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Um, so I, I think there will be a creative boom. But I don't know if in, it's so hard to make money in cricket. Like I can't, I can't, I can't stress that enough. That you know, I, you guys might get sick and tired of hearing about Patreon and buying me a coffee. But it's really hard to make money in cricket. Um, and so I think anything that happens on YouTube will either have to be backed by YouTube, or will take a long time to happen. So what I what I've always found is um, uh, it's that that starting period is quite tough, and I think we've seen that. Um, over and over again, unless you are super famous or, you know, your channel catches fire for whatever reason. But, but yeah, I think there'll be more and more creative content being put on YouTube, whether it's professional or not. I don't know the cricket, cricket broadcasters uh, or media houses just don't really get it. Crick info, get it a little bit. Crick buzz. Don't get it at all. Crick buzz only want famous people, um, on their videos. Um, Crick buzz were talking about bringing me into work and they didn't even want me on video. Right. Um, a lot of the others, the cricketer, obviously, they've only really got involved with it because they've got George Dobell. They haven't really been involved with YouTube before. I've tried to do stuff with the cricketer before on YouTube and they haven't got it. I tried to get The Guardian um, involved for The Ashes and they didn't get it. They're really, these other companies are really slow moving to these sorts of things. So I really think it'll be the amateur space. 
and and my blogs so my youtube even though i'm a professional my youtube started amateur it, there was no way i could ever get the money to start it jared what do you think about uh, storytelling content because cricket has a beautiful history and most of the young generation don't know about the old history of cricket i think uh, it make good content Yeah, I mean I I think everything will go on, you know, YouTube is such a creative space and it allows you so many different options. Uh yeah, I certainly think that. I mean, my channel was started to do the Double Century podcast. We were going to illustrate the Double Century podcast and we ended up pivoting to other things because we'd sold a bunch of videos to Crick Info and we thought we could make those into a channel. Um but eventually if I ever get funding, the Double Century podcast will will be almost like a documentary series. Um eventually um is the way that we that the way that we've been looking at that and certainly what we want to um do going forward. There's already a bunch of uh, sometimes when I'm doing research, especially for Double Century, you come across these great old these great YouTube channels with people just talking about old cricketers. Um you know, I don't think anyone sort of nailed the production side of it yet or maybe even the content side of it, but that's already happening on on YouTube. There's a guy who's been putting up cricket news every day on YouTube for the last 15 years. I think he started in 2007. And he's just not worked out how to make it work yet. This content is there, but there are there are so many people with with time and passion that it will happen. We saw a big boom in cricket podcasts in we maybe 3 or 4 years ago. I would assume that the next big one will be in cricket YouTube. Uh thanks for your question, mate. Thanks, Jared. No worries. Uh you there Joseph? Yeah, I am here. Excellent. What's your question mate? Did you hear a statement made by Harsha Bhogle that it's the easiest time to be number one team for India? I saw that he made that comment. I'm assuming he means that there's no major team to beat, which is probably fair, isn't it? I think the first time India went to number one, I wrote a similar similar article and people got upset. I think part of it is what's the best way of putting it part of it is that we we had 20 years of the west indies and 10 years of australia right and so we have been accustomed to having to knock out a huge team and that hasn't quite been the case anymore and so as cricket fans were like oh well it's easier now i mean it's not easier test cricket has never been more competitive than it is right now we've never had this many teams with so much talent around the world so it's actually harder now to be number 1 than it's ever been at any other stage but at the same point i think the way we sort of think of the, about these things as cricket fans is that there's a void right so yeah, um there's no batting lineup that is settled you know there's no batting lineup settled but that's just cuz bowlers are on top that's that's not that doesn't make it easier or harder right um but but i mean if you think about it if jokovic nadal federer um all retired at the same time whoever's next number 1 straight after that everyone's going to go yeah well of course they're number 1 it's because everyone else is retired right and a similar thing happened with um was it Lennox Lewis went to number 1 after Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield had sort of aged out and had all their problems um and everyone was like well Lennox Lewis is really number 1 you know uh, at this stage it's just that there's no other great boxer around that's a really regular thing that, that you hear in sports and look at, at a certain point and i can say this because i've written that piece before it's kind of nonsense but there's also a basis of truth there right to become number 1 in the world india didn't have to topple a, an incredible team um they just had to be um sort of outlast a bunch of teams who were going through different phases um and that's different to to other eras that we've had before but i don't think that takes away anything from pakistan being when they were ranked number 1 or india when they were ranked number 1 or um new zealand when they were ranked number 1 we saw we've seen australia go to number 1 in the world again despite the fact that they don't play away from home and don't win away from home right so we know it's not the strongest era but it's still tough um because there's so many different challenges in test cricket at the moment that you didn't have to do before right you know for a long time you could dominate um uh a, a test cricket by drawing you can't do that anymore you have to win um so you know and uh, in the old days you had to go to asia occasionally right now you have to go to asia all the time um now you have to deal with the diff- the jukes ball in two different places you're probably going to have to win a bunch of tests in day night um conditions um even if you beat afghanistan you're going to have to go up against rashid khan you know you go to ireland and mark adair um and, and you know tim tim murta jagging the ball everywhere right it test cricket's really tough at the moment um especially to make runs and uh so in in one way harshbogle is completely right and the other way he's completely wrong it just depends on how you frame the question 
Do you think it is easy for the viewers because of the pitches or because of the skills they have done? Uh, well, it's easier for the bowlers. The pitches are better. The analysis is better. The wobble ball is brilliant. So it's probably an easier period to be a bowler than a batter. But the period just before this was probably one of the, if not the hardest, then one of the hardest periods ever to be a bowler, right? So these things change and they can change quite quickly. In 2017, everyone was complaining about batting pitches, boring test matches, batters being on top, all this sort of nonsense. And then within the space of six months, no one could make a run in international cricket. You know, it's incredible how quickly it changed um, and, uh, and all the different factors that probably came together to make that change. But that's the game. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think batting techniques are also play a role? Well, batting techniques are always evolving. You can't tell... If, if batting techniques were the change, it wouldn't be as sharp as it happening in 2017. Batting techniques didn't change in 2017, did they? Right? So... A, it couldn't just be batting techniques. And B, there's a bunch of players in the world who don't play a shot. So it's not it's not as if T20 cricket has changed all these techniques. There's a bunch of guys around the world, Craig Brathwaite and Dean Elgar and Dom Sibley and um, Manus Labashane and um, Ch Chiteshwar Pajara, right? Uh, he's a perfect example. His technique didn't change. Rahane's technique didn't change. What changed? Something else. There's a bunch of guys making a shit ton of runs beforehand. They didn't all change their techniques and they all stopped making runs except for five of them. That's not an accident. That's not technique. That's not T20 cricket. That's something has fundamentally changed with the, the, the balance between bat and ball. All right. Thanks so much for your question. William, you there? Hey, Jared. How you doing? I'm good. Just a quick one on the England Wendy's T20 quite enjoying watching some of the not unknown players but particularly on the England side sort of different players playing how have you found the series so far and is there any way back for England from from yesterday yeah yeah no I think there's certainly a way back I think it's um it's been quite a random series um if you look at it so far I mean you know in England completely falling apart in the first game West Indies getting way behind in the second game and then almost stealing it and then uh you know there's every chance that Phil Salt could have hit a couple more sixes and, and made the West Indies nervous. And realistically, I think West uh, England should have probably got a bit closer in that chase. Um, yeah, I think it's been really fascinating because what you have is England through design of injuries and resting and everything are trying a very experimental side. And West Indies through necessity is, um, you know, trying a bunch of new players and different players and, um, you know, even bringing back someone like Robman Pearl, who's obviously improved a lot, and um, Romario Shepard and Odeon Smith and um, Brandon King. You know, the sort of players that I've been banging on about for ages that have incredible talent in West Indies cricket that haven't been getting a go. So I found it a really fascinating series. I've, you know, been lucky enough to commentate it for, for TalkSport um, and have been enjoying that. But, you know, coming into it, I was like, oh, okay, five T20s. Um, do my job, um, pay the bills and, and finish. But I've, I found myself quite sucked into it. Um, it's really interesting with the World Cup coming up. Uh, really interesting to have a look at England's next crop of players uh, as well. Also, you know, uh, Owen Morgan's continual failure uh, with form. Kyron Pollard sort of fighting. Uh, you know, I mean, West Indies just lost to Ireland, right? So, and, you know, now they're coming up against um, England. It's, you know, huge for them this series. Kyron Pollard kind of, I always say that, I don't think people understand what brilliant politicians Darren Sammy and Jason Holder are. I don't know if either of them are going to get into politics, although Darren Sammy could probably be the president in a heartbeat. Or oh, as Prime Minister of St. Lucia, I should, I should know that. Um, I think it's Prime Minister. Um, uh, uh, you know, he could probably be that in a heartbeat. And Jason Holder would probably do pretty well in Barbados as well. Uh, they're incredible politicians on top of being, you know, good leaders and good cricketers. Karen Pollard is a terrible politician. <laughs> He's grumpy and... Um, he's honest and um, uh, he, you know, can come across quite, quite gruff. So it's actually, you know, uh, for him, it's way more important that he wins than it is for some of the other guys. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I found the whole thing really, really fascinating um, following it, um, uh, watching Rothman as well. So, you know, I was on air with Rothman. I, I tried to side Rothman. I tried to steal him away from Jamaica when I was with St. Lucia because I knew what kind of a player he could be. But he, you know, had I done that, I don't think he would have blossomed into the player that 
that I really thought he could be. Um, I don't know if you saw, but he talked about going off and working on his spin game, which is something he just needed to do. And, you know, watching him play the spinners and um, I thought it was brilliant. And, you know, I've, I've actually got a piece coming up shortly um, on West Indies T20 cricket, which I might not – I don't think I'll have it in time for the England uh, – the end of the England series, but I'll probably save it for when West Indies play India. But there's a real drop-off. Because you have a lot of talent, especially in T20. I'm, I'm always amazed by Yeah, but there's this weird drop-off because of their system. So you, you play CPL when you're like 20 or 21 because they've got this underage um, system which pushes a young player in. And then because there is no system to back that up, between the age of like 21 and 25, they just disappear. And like the really good players like Hetmeyer are fine, but even someone like Puran was kind of like, he kept playing, but he was batting at like number seven for, you know, teams at, at times. And it's just like Odeon Smith, Odeon Smith played like 30 games and yet um, started playing five or six years ago. Um, he's only played 30 games of T20 cricket, right? And we now know how good Odeon Smith is. And I've always known how good he is. And, and you know, and you see this again and again and again. And so there's this real drop-off. And I think the, the biggest thing for West Indies now is, you know, uh, with their, their new management, uh, um, you know, they've got the great coach. They've got Roddy Eswick, who, who coached half of these guys when they were kids. Um, so they've got that great coaching sh- set up there. Um, and they've got a far better administration. But it's really how do you develop those kids so that you don't have a situation with Odie and Smith and Robman Powell where they have to get good on their own, right? It really is how do we turn this incredible talent core that we keep that is out there and we we make it let them get good on their own yeah yeah exactly and and it's great if they're hetmeyer or they're andre russell or they're kyron pollard but what you if you want to be a consistent team it's really that sort of that group underneath you want them to be consistently good and i think that and that's this is not just t20 it's just t20 it's the most obvious thing but that's really what you want you don't want someone coming back at 28 and suddenly you know hoping that they're good you want to make sure that you're doing that and i think that's where they're missing so that's why i found this series so interesting because odian smith and robin powell are two perfect examples of that even romario shepherd you know he was another one I, I mean for me i wanted to build a franchise around the young west indian players and even overpay some of the younger players knowing that we could get seven or eight of them in um and that in three or four years we would just be the best team in the league right we could pick the best four um to retain um and then do the same thing again um and that was my whole plan there. And I, because I could see this happening. I saw Odium when he played. For, I think he played two games for St. Lucia the year I was there. And I'm like, this guy's incredible. Um, you know, and there's so many of them out there. You know, someone like Chandrapal, um, uh Hemraj is another one. It's just like, oh my, like I've, sometimes I, I want to message Chandrapal Hemraj and just be like, I don't think you know how good you are. You could be one of the best players in the world. It's just you need to work on your game and, and understand what you need to be. And, and that's the bit they're missing. But thanks so much for your question, mate. Thanks, Jared. Take care. Sit off. Yes, hello. Yeah, so my question Excellent. is kind of delving into a bit of the shady side of cricket, which is mostly cheating, like cricketing on tours for five or six months straight or sometimes even longer, which is stupid, really. But uh, yeah, them, going, them leaving their country, them leaving for so long, basically, and they cheat. And we don't uh, talk about this much, but I think... You can believe anything uh, that you hear in the media first of all, that's a given. And the, the second thing is, uh, you being, uh, you once said, I think that one cricketer told you that there are two types of players, one that take a hard disk of one and one that cheat. But one thing <laughs> cricketers cheat because they can cheat, like they are international cricketers, they are men with status and all that stuff. But, um, so can you just, uh, I think, venture on into this topic a little bit for me? Because I've been curious about this for a while now. Uh, I mean, if you want me to be honest, men cheat at an astronomical rate, regardless of them being international cricketers and regardless of them being away from home. Um, I think that the way that men treat women in relationships is pretty poor. Um, I think cheating is quite commonplace right across most of the cultures I've ever come across. Um, And then you add loneliness, you add depression. Um, Cricketers specifically get their self-worth out of their performance. Um, So if you're having a bad day, you know, the ability to perk that up with a, with a, 
some random woman who thinks you're great because you wang a ball down quite fast um, is there. There's also, you know, for a lot of women, a professional athlete is a trophy. And for a lot of the professional athletes, they treat women like they're trophies as well. So there's a real competitiveness about uh, um, around that between the players. Um, uh, you know, the great funny story from years ago that Nick – the England players thought Nick Compton was too good looking, um, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that's ever been um, completely, uh, I'm not sure how much that story is true, but it's like, I've heard things like that before. Um, so you've got people traveling for months on end um, away from their families and it gets lonely. It gets lonely for me as a journalist. Um, uh, I'm assuming, you know, it's just as bad for them and their careers in the public spotlight and they're famous and people want to hang out with famous people. And um, also I think athletes in general have a real, I, I don't want to say they have a higher sex drive than anywhere else, but you know, they're certainly um, almost like a, they're competitive. So winning women, and, and I say this about the women cricketers as well, uh, you know, betting as many people as they can in, in some cricket sporting cultures is certainly a part of it. I think that's fair. So yeah. That's a very odd question that you'd ask, but I hopefully I've answered that correctly for you. Yeah, sorry for making you uncomfortable, but yeah, no, I just no, watched just, a I didn't. Shane Vaughan documentary that came oh, okay. on and I was like, Shane Vaughan is definitely a pretty unique case, I'm assuming. I'm hoping, actually. No, I, I see, I don't think he, I don't that think That leaves me a little curious about this and you you really can't trust anything in the media. Um, I thought that because you have been pretty close to uh, cricket teams and many cricketers and also because cricket is so much more global than most other sports so this might be a thing no i think you're right i think being away that far away from home and being away for that long probably makes cricket a high risk target uh, i don't know what the divorce rates are in cricket if they're higher than in other professional sports uh, but it's really really tough i can promise you that um, i can promise you that as someone as a journalist like you know I'm traveling around, I'm doing this great job, but my wife's back at home with, well, two children, but now three, um, although I haven't traveled since we've had the third. But, you know, it's tough um, just on a marriage generally. Then you've got all the other different parts of uh, of this um, that we talked about there. Uh, yeah, I think um, Shane Warne is an extreme example, and I can say that from the very little time I spent around him he's absolutely obsessed with sex i don't you know i don't know if he's ever said publicly he's a sexaholic but i would think he would be um uh and those those people doesn't matter if you're shame worn or not right that's a problem um uh, and then and then you you know then being famous on top of that probably makes his whole thing harder and weirder um and then you know uh but as a general rule yeah a bunch of blokes traveling together you know, go out, they want to one-up each other. Do you know what I mean? All these different things play into it. And as I said, women's cricket is, you know, quite full-on as well. Um, so it's not, this is not just a men's problem. It's like, you know, those women's tours can go for long times as well. And, you know, hear great stories from there as well. So there's been some really interesting questions today that I did not think I would ask. Uh, can I ask you a follow-up question, if you don't mind, about cricket? Sure. Not about this. Yeah. yeah, so I've been very interested in cricket history in recent times and you seem to be the only historian which is not 80 years old and still have oh. a bit of humor in his article. Abhishek Mukherjee, come on now, he's great. He's not 80 years old. He might look 80. But do you understand, right? Because I'm like, I'm a teenager, so I think your humor appeals to uh, my demographic and sort of younger people more, in my opinion. Anyway, but yeah, so uh, my question is about what are the, um, first of all, uh, are ballers, uh, do ballers actually impact uh, the ma a match more than a batsman? Because we hear this all the time, this shit, because, and I'm not really convinced that a batsman averaging 50 plus is really worse than a, ba a, a bowler averaging 23, 24 for a 10 year period. So this is my first question. Another question is, which ones are probably your five best all-rounders of all time? Which all-rounder do you think is a bit overrated, in your opinion? Okay. Uh, so bowlers, I'm assuming we're talking test cricket here. Bowlers are more important than batters. You know, if you have four frontline bowlers, or even if you're lucky enough to have five frontline bowlers, or you have four frontline bowlers and a bunch of really good replacements, um, you're going to dominate uh, cricket 
in that period. Uh, we, you know, that's a consistent thing. If you have even one week bowling um, slot or two week bowling slots, uh, you're not going to win a lot of tests. Um, so there's a big difference there over batters. Um, and that's all the way through history. The best teams are almost always, you know, sometimes they're balanced and sometimes they can bat really well, but they're almost always have great bowling lineups. There's there's no there's no great batting lineups who who have average bowlers who dominate cricket. You you can't. Uh, so that's your your first one. Uh, five best all rounders of all time. Um, I think Imran Khan's probably number one um, for that ten year period where no one ever touched him. I think Garfield Sober's record would be a lot better um, if he wasn't completely over bowled. I think Garfield Sober's almost bowled twice the amount of overs in a game that Jacques Callis did. Um, so, uh, and he also, you know, he was a swing bowler and then he bowled finger spin, then he bowled wrist spin. He was probably more of a part-timer of the other two. And that probably bloated up his average. He probably ends up with a much better average. So I think he's probably the other one at the top of that list. Keith Miller, if Keith Miller, I could, I could see a situation where Keith Miller would have certainly, um, averaged, um, a lot more with the bat if it was needed. Um, but in the era that he played, he didn't seem to care, um, uh, so Keith Miller's numbers probably don't look quite as good as you know some of the other great all-rounders do, but Keith Miller probably had the potential of averaging under 25 with the ball and over 40 with the bat. Um, and there aren't many people that have ever had that, um, uh, you know, um, appeared. So Keith Miller probably goes up there. Um, uh, I probably put Aubrey Faulkner in um, in, in that list. Uh, I suppose what do you have? Peak both of them. Maybe have Kapil Dev above Pete, Pete Botham just because his career was a lot better and he had the ball on unresponsive pitches for his kind of bowling. Um, so you probably have Kapil Dev, I suppose, above him. Um, uh, apologies to Aubrey Faulkner and some of the other guys out there. So, yeah, so those are probably the ones. Uh, overrated all-rounder? I mean, I suppose Ian Botham because most of his skill is in that first part of his career and he becomes not an average player after that, but certainly not the same player. But he wasn't overrated because of what he could do at the start of his career was mind blowing. Callis, certainly not overrated. Aubrey Faulkner, certainly not overrated. God, it's so, it's so hard to be overrated as an all rounder. Cause if you've done it, there's only a handful of you in the history of the game. Um, I can't think of any, or I can't think of any genuine all rounders who are really overrated. So I hope that helps you there. All right. I'll just answer this from Kyle. Uh, Kyle says, in the last couple of months, USA beat Ireland at home. The same Ireland squad that beat the West Indies away. Same West Indies squad that's now playing white ball champ to England. Um, is it fair to say there's a sign of progress for the USA team or are there more extenuating circumstances? There are, Kyle. Um, I just done a podcast with Andy Belberni. He admitted that their T20 cricket's not that good and that's where West Indies, that's West Indies, that's where USA beat Ireland. So I think you have to remember Ireland didn't qualify for the second round of the part of the World Cup. But, Quite clearly, USA is on its way up um, in many different ways. So I think that's that's very, very fair. Uh, I don't think anyone would argue that. Mark, you there? Hello, can you hear me? Ah, there he is. Uh, not particularly great for somebody who's meant to work in radio that I can't get it working, but there you go. Why don't you vlog your podcast while you're here and then ask your question? Oh, thank you. It's uh, the Murrily end. We try to cover about as much cricket as possible, but cricket just never seems to stop or end or sleep so it's just a a group of fans mostly based in the uk but a few across the world in america and and india as well just talking about the game that we all love right merely end find it in your podcast the places now people oh yes please Uh, i just wanted to ask you jared what you thought of mahela jar wardner as a coach because he seems to have won loads of franchise tournaments including the ipl and the hundred and SLC and their infinite wisdom have sent, sent him out with the under-19s. And he seems to be doing quite an amazing job there, though they're not having the greatest day against Afghanistan. Yeah, um, I, so we worked with him. I've worked with him a couple of times. I worked with him at Crick Info and I worked with him at TalkSport. One thing I realised that Mahela had is, so so Kumar's known as the thinker and, and uh, you know, and Kumar's quite, it's quite hard to get into Kumar's inner circle, right? Mahela is just a natural at connecting with people. Um, you know, I, I felt from the first time I met him, I remember he was like friends with all the camera crew at, at, at Cricket Info and ESPN. Um, 
he's just a real natural connector and he finds a way to communicate with people. And I've seen him at events and stuff and the way he works. And this isn't a put on, do you know what I mean? This is just, that's who Mahela is. That's a really good skill if you're a franchise coach because someone comes from here and someone comes from there and you've only got a couple of months and you've only got a little time. The ability to sort of bring people together really quickly uh, with that kind of personality, it's almost a major part of the job because he's not going to spend a lot of his time going, oh, your wrist needs to move here or here, right? Franchise cricket quite often don't have that chance. So that sort of connect, and I I suppose Jason Gillespie is maybe another good version of that. Um, Obviously, he hasn't done as much in franchise cricket, but again, I think Jason Gillespie has that sort of thing. And I I would say that they're, um, what's the best way of putting them? They're almost, um, they're putting everyone in the right position to succeed. Uh, They're making everyone feel comfortable and feel confident and feel like they're part of it. And I think that is a really, really important thing that Mahela does. Also think that tactically he's very, very smart. Um, You know, Mumbai seems so drilled with the way they did things. He really seems to understand role and role role playing within T20 cricket specifically and also how to use tactics. Also helps, you know, I think in both of the, the cases that you brought up, he had great teams, right? I was like... We don't really know how good a coach he is um, because he just had absolutely um, brilliant teams in, in both situations. And part of it, he, he had something to do with that. But also there was a lot of other people involved in that. And, you know, in Mumbai's case, they were, I think they were good before Mahela came on board. So um, I think all those things are very fair. The one thing that has always made me not suspicious of him as a coach, but it was the way that he treated Mustafiz Rahman in the, doc, the Mumbai Indians documentary. That was the first time I thought, I wonder, he was just really harsh on him. Um, and maybe it was just some home truths and they just happened to film it. And, I'm, you, know, I, you know, I'm looking at it in a different way. But I do remember looking at that and going, that's quite interesting. That's not how I would expect Mahela to be a coach. But he's had success. Everyone I've talked to really likes him. I know they were desperate to get him down to the Southern Braves. Um, my experience, he's quite a professional, quite a good thinker on the game, um, you know, really likes analytics. And as I said, he, I think he puts, he makes players feel comfortable um, and that's a big, big part of the job. And if you can match that up with a bit of a tactical nous um, and some intelligence, I think you go a long way to being a good coach in T20 cricket. Honestly, though, the rest is getting a good team, which he only has a little bit to do with at times, um, and the rest is luck. And he, he's had very good teams and he's probably had a little bit of luck. Brilliant. Thanks. No worries. Thanks for your question. Thanks to everyone, actually, for all their questions today. Another very good podcast. I was not expecting to talk about player's sex life or my nan. My nan would love to hear about the player's sex life. In fact, every time two footballers would fight on the field, she would say, oh, that's because um, he's sleeping with her, the other guy's girlfriend. No no basis to this. This was just what she said. <laughs> A big thanks to the sponsors, to Manscaped. Remember, you can get 20% off free worldwide shipping if you put in the code REDINCA, all one word and you can shave your balls better than you currently shave them, or you can shave your boyfriend's balls or your husband's balls or, you know, your friend's balls. I don't know. It doesn't have to be your own balls. If you don't have balls, or I'll leave that bit up to you. Big thanks to Bodyline T-shirts and, again, to the Patreons. You know, this podcast wouldn't exist without the Patreon support. So huge thanks to everyone there, and we'll see you again next time.